this new labor market is transforming their whole HR practices. And that to me is more exciting than anything else, because that means that these companies are actually truly realizing that they're not just science companies, they're actually people companies. Hello and welcome. I'm Bruce Seat, and you're listening to the Science to Business Network podcast, a show dedicated to showcasing the stories, advice, and insights of individuals who are working at the interface of science, innovation, and business. We'll hear their stories and how they're using science to change the world. We hope these stories will inspire you and provide you a sense of the wonder and the possibilities of science and the diversity of opportunities and careers to make a meaningful impact. We've invited the President and CEO of Biotalent Canada, Rob Henderson, to join us through Zoom from his home in Ottawa. Rob studied biology at the University of Ottawa and took on a number of leadership roles throughout the 90s, heading a variety of organizations spanning the nonprofit and the for-profit space. About 10 years ago, Rob took over at Biotalent Canada, transforming it into one of the leading organizations supporting Canada's bioeconomy. He and his organization are focused on understanding Canada's talent gaps, developing programs and resources to support skills development, and creating tools to connect employers with Canada's skilled bioscience workforce. Today, we'll hear Rob's journey and the work he and Biotalent Canada are doing to develop Canada's life sciences industries by harnessing our greatest resource, people. Sit back, relax, and enjoy this conversation with Rob Henderson. Okay, hi Rob. Welcome to the Science to Business Network podcast. It's great to have you here on the show to talk about your career journey and the work you and your team at Biotalent Canada have been doing to develop the talent pool and promote biotechnology skills development. So let's start from the beginning. Where did you grow up? What were your aspirations as a kid? And how did you end up studying biology at the University of Ottawa? Well, thanks, Bruce. Um, I was born in Hull, Quebec, which is now known as Gatineau, <clears throat> but at the time was Hull, so I'm an Anglo-Quebecer, and I think it fashioned my youth a great deal. I went to English school in Quebec, grew up bilingual. I always had a pretty good, I was always pretty good at math and sciences, so I had sort of natural aptitude. So I thought I would go into something like that. And I had an absolutely inspirational biology teacher when I was in high school. Anyway, she brought the subject absolutely alive for me, and I've been in love with the subject ever since. So I went into biology. I thought maybe it le would lead to a career in medicine. But at the time, I don't know, you know, we're talking about 30 years ago. So Bruce, you know, people are so serious now with kids about, oh my God, you know, at 17, you have to know where you want to go and what you want to do and all of that stuff. I, I just loved science. I knew it was a good field that was in demand. I had no idea where it was going to lead at the time. I thought maybe medicine, like a lot of science people, so yeah, you know, I can see if I, if I like going to medicine. So um, I went into biology, and um, I absolutely loved it. I loved the field of uh, evolution and a whole bunch of things. And I was brought up Catholic, so I loved the conflict that, uh, that it actually uh, uh, brought up with me, myself and my parents and uh, myself and my social circles of how to, uh, how to reconcile um, scientific proof with your own uh, belief system. Um, and how when new proof uh, presents itself, how you have to adjust. And I think I've done that all my life as well. So I got a degree in biology, and I was still 
flirting with medicine. So I got a job then at uh, the Ottawa General Hospital as an administrative and clinical center clerk. And I saw how doctors learned and I decided I did not want to become a doctor anymore. <laughs> so uh, I, sh I shifted away from medicine and I got involved in community activism. Can you walk me through your career path then after the University of Ottawa? And it seems you started out in leadership roles right from the beginning in the nonprofit sector. Uh, what were the lessons you took away from those experiences that shaped your work today? I think one of the biggest lessons I learned was that I learned far more in a small organization about leadership and about the fundamentals of business than I ever did in some of the larger organizations I've worked at. And I also learned if you start if you start out with something you love, I loved biology, that original career didn't work out. And then I taught um, at the Sejep level and high school biology, I, I was dabbling. I was taking over mat lead positions and, and stuff and I, I dabbled in it. So I never really exited the field of biology, uh, at least not in my heart. But I was involved um, at a young age in some community activism. And not to the degree that a lot of the millennials are now, and I really envy that. I think it's lovely that they are because I think they're in a good space to be able to pursue those as things that they love and things that they care about. Because when you care about something, it doesn't feel like work as much. You know, it's, you're still learning and you're applying new principles, but you're also pursuing something that's near and dear to your heart. It's not just a paycheck. And I think that's, I think that's something the millennials um, have rediscovered that many of us in the yuppie generation and the Gen Xs have lost. So I got involved as a volunteer in this community activist organization in Hull that was called Udaway Alliance. The West Quebec region is called the Udaway. And it was about solidifying English-speaking institutions and the English-speaking culture within a French-speaking Quebec. Uh, embracing a French-speaking Quebec for sure, but, but showing that the English-speaking presence was very important and culturally vibrant. Anyway, I believe, I believe very strongly about that because my ancestor had founded Hull. Philemon Wright was my great-great-great-great-grandfather and he had founded the city of Hull. So it was something I was very tied to. But what was interesting is the volunteer gig turned into, as it often happens in nonprofits, it turned into a paying gig. Um, and they saw how, how um, passionate I was on the board of directors, and they offered me a job as a community uh, liaison officer. And within two years um, of that, the executive director had departed, and I was at 25 years old, and I applied for that job, and I got it. And uh, I never looked back. I've been uh, passionate about leadership and uh, leading talented teams of individuals uh, ever since uh, that time. So I, um, I, started, I started very young, but I was very ambitious. So I wanted to puddle jump because, you know, once you're executive director, it's kind of difficult to go any further, you know, <laughs> it's, you're sort of at the top of the heap. So what you had to do is to advance your career, you had to puddle jump, you had to go into a new job uh, at that level or, or, or parallel. And um, I did that until I was executive director of three different associations in the nonprofits uh, by the time I was uh, 32, 32 years old. And one was a National Journalism Association, and another one was a National, National Dental Assisting Association. And uh, I really liked that because they were national in scope, they weren't just regional. And uh, that gave me a really interesting perspective. And uh, I learned a great deal, especially for those two professions. It was, uh, it was really, it was quite fascinating. Um, I'm, a, I'm a passionate advocate of journalism, and I'm a passionate advocate of, uh, of dental assisting, of all things, because it's, it's, uh, it's occupied predominantly by underpaid young women. 
I felt like Robin Hood every day. I was felt like I was trying to uh, uh, represent a very downtrodden, underrepresented, and uh, um, afflicted group of uh, worthwhile demographic and feeling very passionate about the work as well. Those are two very different kinds of organizations. Hey, I'm curious, from the journalism perspective, what did you take away? From the journalism perspective, um, I took away, I can't, I've met so many journalists, like people think that journalism is a profession. It's not, it's a vocation. Um, I have never met a more passionate, dedicated, smart group of people than the journalists that I worked for and the journalists in Canada. To be a journalist, especially now, to be a journalist is, is, is it's like being wanting to be a starving artist. You truly have to love your art. And um, especially with the unjustified vilification of uh, journalists and the media, um, it's such a cliche now uh, to, to, to blame the media um, that everything was going on. And it's, it's absolutely baloney. Uh, the journalists I've met never had a, had, a, had a bent left and right. Their job was to tell the story in a balanced way. Um, but what was interesting about journalism too is it taught me communications, mm -hmm. something I'm very, very passionate about. Mm -hmm. And um, that a lot of people think that, you know, communications is all content generation. <clears throat> it's not. And to me, it's always been about the editing. It's always been about telling a story as concisely as possible. If you can, if you can tell your story in 200 words, don't use 350. And I think as a, as a, because there's so much content out there with websites that are free and internet is free and all of that stuff, content is free, it's so cheap, that we forget that the real art and the elegance is in the editing. It's in the conciseness of communications. Of communications. And uh, I think that was something I certainly taught me in, in journalism that, that, uh, to try to hone my message as much as I could. Do you see scientists now that you you work with a lot of scientists? Uh, are they afflicted with difficulties, maybe in in honing that message down, or and, and what lessons or advice could you provide to a scientist who wants to create a story and to be more concise? Oh, you've hit you've hit one of my pet peeves and one of my passions. Um, there are two people that are in science communications are my heroes, Neil deGrasse Tyson and Alan Alda of all people. Alan Alda who used to host Scientific American on uh, TV for years and years, has become a passionate advocate. He has a fantastic podcast about scientific communications mm -hmm. because scientists are amongst the worst communicators I've ever seen. It's one of the reasons why I love working for Biotonic Canada. It's, it's, it's because we try to tell stories about what we do where scientists can't, or it's very difficult for them. They're, they're brought up in academia so much that they believe they have to show the process of their science from beginning to end for you to grasp or to get passionate about what they're doing. And in fact, they don't. Um, people appreciate the sizzle more than the steak. Uh, it's one of the reasons why, why scientists have such a, such a tough time pitching. Because when you're talking to a venture capitalist, you have to, in a very short amount of time, state what you're doing, what you're gonna end up with, and what the market opportunity is. The rest can be filled in the blanks later on, but with a See, scientists, where their passion is usually in the process, it's in the methodology. And they're used to having to prove the methodology every step along the way before they can come to a conclusion. Human nature, in terms of communications and psychology, isn't that way. It's get to the point, please. And, and that's just human nature. We want, there's a, there's a natural cadence to a story, right? There's, right, all the way up to the climax and the denouement, and there's got to be a, and 
we're natural storytellers. That's what, as a, we're social. That's what resonates with us. And scientists have a tremendously difficult time telling a story and relating to the everyday person who doesn't understand and doesn't get passionate about, you know, uh, enzyme ligases and, and unzipping a, a double helix of DNA and all of those things that, that, uh, that this, these scientists have been studying for 30 or 40 years. So as a result, it's very difficult. There seems to be a gulf between what people want to hear and what scientists want to tell you. And like even now, we have such a difficult time. It's in the age of COVID, it's a little easier because everybody's going, everybody's looking to biotech to save the world at this point, right? So, which is lovely. And it's it's nice to see a little bit of an uplift in the brand. But before, every second movie you saw was the villain in it was a pharmaceutical CEO, you know, because nobody understood the industry. Nobody understood. They just think that this industry is out to to keep keep everyone sick and 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 wring every ounce. And that's not the case. And it's not just because people don't want to hear it. People's attention spans have gone down. You know, it's a 120 or 240 character universe. If you can't dumb down your message in, in 120 characters, you, you, you don't get, you're not able to communicate. And we're bad at it. The, um, the biotech industry is notoriously bad at it. It's very difficult for us to be able to land our key messages on a increasingly distracted world. You brought up the point of, that the brand has been tarnished. How do you regain, how does the industry regain that trust, in your opinion? By, I think, showing the face of the people they've helped and the face of the problems that they've solved. One of my heroes, my science hero, is Frederick Banting. Now, there's a couple of reasons for that. Uh, number one, well, there's three reasons for that. Number one, he's Canadian. Number two, he discovered insulin. And number three, my son has type one diabetes. You, and people don't want to hear the amount of time that Frederick Banting was trying to extract insulin and do all of these things and everything else. What they do want to hear is that that one discovery has saved over 400 million lives in the last 100 years. People will raise their eyebrows and will go, wow. Or you tell them the story of the laboratory when he started injecting children who were in diabetic comas. And you focus on one with a name, with some details that people find salient. Talk about their parents and how they were present. <clears throat> when the child woke up. Hmm. You don't have to have a PhD in biochemistry to understand that story. You simply have to have a beating heart. And it's those kinds of stories we need to tell. Um, people marginally know about Frederick Banting. I can't imagine a greater science hero in Canada. He was also a World War I hero. He's a World War I war veteran and war hero. I mean, the guy has hero written all over him. And, and, and it's, we haven't told that story effectively. And that's just one. Mm -hmm. I mean, that is just one. When you talk about some of the other brilliant neurologists and neurosurgeons, all throughout Canadian history and um, that we don't know. And again, we don't, we shouldn't try. Science will seep in, but we can't lead with the science. We have to lead with the human interest. And I think that's what we, we really need to do because, and it's not just, it's not just the general public, it's governments. Um, we have to change government's perception of science because they, if we're going to have any kind of, substantive discussion about climate change and how science is leading that and technology is leading that 
and that sustainable development technology and science could lead and eventually replace uh, the fossil fuel industry um, and where Canada could emerge as a world leader here. We have to start telling stories about it and, and, and not stories that take five hours. <laughs> what, what you're bringing up also is the emotional impact. And one of the things I think scientists maybe resist might be around infusing any sort of emotion and trying to be dispassionate when you're conveying and communicating data. And so that's the training and, and right. it's a hard thing to deprogram, but it's fascinating that you went to this journalism association and picked up on this very early on. Storytelling is kind of a newer thing, I think, in organizational communication. It is, but it's so ancient and so visceral. It's how communication and culture, how our values were transmitted around campfires for thousands of years. And in fact, we're wired for stories as a social animal. And journalists have known this for years. The best journalists are the best storytellers. They wrap it in color and they wrap it in exquisite detail. And they're curious. They're, they ask the best journalists and interviewers like yourself, Bruce, you ask great questions. And it's a curiosity because you want to find out how are we alike? The, the connection is human. The connection is emotional. The connection is shared experiences feelings. The connection is not going to be, wow, I have test tubes just like that. You know, it's not going to be, <laughs> that's not going to be it. And the thing about with science is we have such great stories to tell. Everybody has had somebody who's been touched by cancer. A pre-diabetes or diabetes or type 2 diabetes is going to affect a third of our population. We have stories about parents or grandparents that are living longer lives. I mean, if you've got a parent or a grandparent that's over 80, thank a scientist. I mean, that's really the reason, right? It's, it's vaccines and new medicines that are, that are all of that stuff. And these are fantastic human interest stories to talk about because you bring people to a warm place. You bring people to the fact that, oh yeah, we're talking about grandma now. We're not talking about the vaccine that helped her or the, or the, or the orphan drug that cured her. We're talking about human experience. And we got to get back to that. I think science has to get back to that. Science can learn so much from journalism. So let's talk about biotalent. And your, your role that you took then in 2011, how did you come to take on the role as the head of Biotalent Canada? Well, it was interesting. I had worked, just finished a stint uh, 10 years in the private sector. Uh, I had worked as the Canadian, the executive director of the Canadian Association of Journalists for several years. And then um, a newswire company decided, liked what I was doing there and asked me to become the bureau chief, their bureau chief here in Ottawa for and I did that for 11 years, and I, I, uh, I finished my stint there as VP of Eastern Canada. And so at that point, I had had about uh, a good 16, 17 years, of both in the private and public sector, of executive leadership experience. And I still loved science, but I hadn't worked in science yet, uh, except for dabbling as a teacher when I was a young man. So I was very much on the work. I was, what could I do where I could apply a bunch of my talents? And this organization came along. Uh, Biotalent Canada, and uh, they were they were stationed here in Ottawa. Biotalent Canada was, and came out, and I thought, well, this is interesting—a nonprofit national association that deals with attracting the best and the brightest to the Canadian biotech industry. So I thought, wow, nonprofit—they're looking for an executive director. Biotech, wow, looks like it's marrying a bunch of things. A lot of buttons were pressed. So what was really interesting for me for this organization, um, I've always been fat, passionate, especially in the, when I was in the private sector, of leading teams. I loved that. I loved 
leading teams and working in teams and working with people. So I was wondering how they were going to, how this organization ran. Did they, did they walk the talk? Because they were all about the people, but I wanted to know if the team here felt that the organization was about the people, right? Because you have to, you have to sort of get your house in order to get any kind of credibility out there, right? If your association is about the people, how are you going to be an advocate in the, in the industry about it? I found out that the board of directors that hired me uh, were very passionate about the people. And that was, in fact, that was the primary focus. How is the team? First question they always asked me and always led with in the interviews and everything else was, tell me about your team leading. Tell me how you worked in high-performance teams. How do you get uh, high-performance teams to that level? And lots of, lots of questions about emotional intelligence and empathy and all of the things that were hitting good buttons for me. So it seemed like it was a good fit. And luckily to this date, the, the, the team has always been my board of directors' primary concern, which has always been great because I always thought there was good alignment there. What was the state of talent development in Canada at the time you took over? And what were some of the big issues that you identified uh, and how have you prioritized dealing with those issues? The state and talent, well, it was very interesting. Biotalent Canada, when I arrived, was uh, sort of a, an arm's length government agency that was fully funded by the federal government, sort of did what the government thought was necessary for the industry. But the problem was we were Biotalents Canada itself was not connected to the industry or driven by the industry. So therefore, it was sort of this ivory tower kind of academia, intelligentsia think tank that produced a bunch of very interesting products and services that would have been good in theory, but in fact, weren't getting a lot of uptake in the industry. So there seemed to be a big gulf between what we were producing and what the industry needed, largely because we weren't getting the necessary input. So in terms of the state of talent, uh, they had just finished, we just finished a labor market intelligence study, which has stated a couple of things that were kind of disturbing. There was a lack of real leadership skills. Uh, There was a real need for executive leadership skills, not scientific skills at that level, but leadership skills, uh, the essential skills, the skill, the success skills that we all associate with leaders, uh, critical thinking, problem solving, team building, all of those things. That was one thing. There were some technical skills as well that started to rear its ugly head, but what was emerging was there seemed to be a bit of a divide or a gap between what the schools were producing, colleges and universities, because biotech's a very educated vertical, right? Probably the most educated vertical in the world, meaning you pretty much can't have little chance of working in it without a college or university degree. It's simply that's sort of the entry-level ticket. Um, and if you want to be an innovator, you've got to have a, you've got to have a master's or postdoc uh, if you want to be a true innovator, because you have to learn the w- rules before you're going to break them. So there were there were there seemed to be a lot of skills where a lot of these grads that were graduating were unemployed or unemployable, and that's really bad when you've got somebody who's graduated like with an honors in biology degree and. They don't have the skills that a biotech firm would even employ them. So there seemed to be a lot of, there seemed to be, it'll seem to be polarized. The big problem was at the entry level, the juniors and at the very highest. In the middle, there seemed to be okay, middle managers and stuff like that, not too bad. Though sales and marketing skills were still lacking in some of those, which were skills that a lot of scientists don't have, right? Or haven't been, haven't been taught. So that seemed to be it. Now, beyond that, you had a socio-demographic problem too because you had a whole bunch of women graduating, but not as many of them being employed. So they were being employed at a less like, you're going, well, what is that? Is that a, is that, are they not applying? Is that a, an, an unconscious bias? You know, because a lot of people who were working in biotech at that time, and like 10 years ago, were middle-aged white guys. And that seemed to be a monochromatic 
sort of space. And at that point, even newcomers were having a tough time breaking into the industry. So there seemed to be a lot of, uh, we had really low numbers from the indigenous community, very low numbers from Canadians who, Canadians who had disabilities, all of this. So there seemed to be a lot of gulfs that were out of sync. How did you prioritize them? It seems like there were so many different issues facing the industry. Well, at the beginning, we were we didn't have to prioritize them. The government prioritized them for us. So and essentially, with some of the research we had, we could convince the federal government, which is who we worked with, which was, which is really the, the entity that is empowered to do labor market research, has a mandate about youth unemployment, and, and certainly had national mandates to increase labor mobility and science uh, and, uh, and uh, uh, the science economy. So at that time, we were able to show the government what the statistics proved, because we wanted to use the scientific method before we addressed problems. So what we did was we would define the issue, go out and do scientific research surveys and, and, and everything else, and we would quantify it. So we would have a number. So we, we saw things like 60% of new graduates were women, but employment of women was falling by 11%. We knew the status of Women Canada um, and other government departments had a mandate to address things like that. So we went over there and said, look, here's the evidence. What can we do together to address this? We did that amongst the youth employment. Uh, the uh, government has a youth employment strategy uh, that they, and they, we said, look, there's a huge unemployment link to the government and do that. So they, we were doing a lot of work around women, around newcomers, and around youth. Uh, we still are. The leadership skills piece is a little tougher one to crack because everybody comes at it from different angles. And the issue, one of the biggest issues is the term, leadership skill. Everybody has a different definition of it. To some people, it's, well, it's commercialization. And yes, that's part of it. It also depends on what leadership skills, because if you're talking about leadership skills to a, a company that has five people, that has been just spun, spun out of an incubator and a university, that's very different than the leadership skills of a multinational pharmaceutical company, um, right? Like there's, and when you talk about some of these companies, 80% of the companies in the economy are small and medium-sized enterprises, SMEs. Half of those have less than 10 employees. So you're talking about, and I'm here to tell you, when you're a chief cook and bottle washer, and I know because I was in the nonprofit sector of a small company, you learn everything, man. You learn sales, marketing, you learn leadership, and you because you have no choice. You, you do that or the doors closed, <clears throat> even though your education may be working against you. Right? It's a great, it's a great place to sink or swim. Mm -hmm. But a lot of these people were coming into these companies as PhDs in molecular biology or something. No idea of how to lead a team, no formal training in HR, never pitched anything in their lives. Tough, tough. And some of those leadership skills that they were leaning on were very different depending on, you know, what stage of evolution the company is at. Um, in, some, in some cases there's organic growth. Uh, and then there was other cases where you're, you're trying to get bought depending on your on what your on what your business uh, and your shareholders' uh, uh, aims and objectives are, so uh, that one is still something we're trying to tackle in the bioeconomy. But we were also trying to align the bioeconomy. Like you have to you have to get a willing audience first. So if you and what I mean by that is, we had to make sure that we picked the needs that would resonate with partners that would work with us to correct them. So, for example, the government really isn't doesn't care about trying to improve biotechnology's brand or our communication skills. Really, they're not. 
They don't care about that. They do care about youth employment. They do care about pay equity and uh, the fact that it's an underemployer of women and the fact that newcomers were not finding a lot of jobs within the bioeconomy. And the bioeconomy is a, is a great industry. We pay well, we're philanthropic, we're good corporate citizens. Like it's an industry that any country wants to have flourish because it's, it's a fantastic bastion of corporate citizenry. So we had, to be, we had to pick our battles and we had to pick our partners based on the statistics we had and the priorities that were, that were out there. And at the time, it seemed that youth, women, and newcomers seemed to be big ticket items for the partners that we were looking for. So we used those, the statistics and the, those as causes to try to develop our skill sets and to make uh, our training programs and a lot of the products and services we came out more robust, not just for those groups, but for everybody. But those were the vehicles, if you understand what I mean. You're also bringing up, I think, an important point around sales and marketing. And there's an aversion to, to the concept of sales or marketing, that it's, uh, it's something that they don't do. Uh, and yet there's a lot of principles around influence, communicating and making your point that could be benefit. Maybe we have to rebrand sales to, to scientists, but I, I oh, don't yeah. know what, how, do you, how do you overcome that, that bias maybe against it? Oh, I have, you have, absolutely. I mean, I'm passionate about sales. I'm passionate about it. And it was interesting. I had to get into the private sector to understand why, because I went into the private sector when I went into it, I was essentially a, I was essentially a glorified sales manager, right? But what I didn't realize is I was a good salesperson all the way along up until there. And to me, Bruce, there's two kinds of people. There's salespeople and there's people who haven't admitted it to themselves yet. Because I don't care what you're doing, you're in sales. If you're a financial accountant and you're going to your boss to talk about what the numbers are saying and which way they go, you're trying to sell them, trying to sell them on the idea, on the credibility of the numbers, or on your own credibility. It's always the case. It's not necessarily that money hasn't, a money has not been exchanged for a commodity or for a service, but we're in the art of persuasion. We're in the art of communication and persuasion. And persuasion is just a lovelier term for sales. And that's the problem with sales is everybody sees, here's the term, and they think of that seedy, crappy used car salesman that took their mother, their grandmother. Like sales has sometimes been cliched with shyster, with, with dishonesty or trying to rook someone, uh, to trick someone into giving you something that you ordinarily wouldn't give them. Um, but the true art of sales is the art of persuading someone through the power of your relationship with them primarily and then the art of communication and the art of also, to me, showing them something they didn't otherwise know. Um, the best salespeople that I've ever heard, that I've ever seen, are fonts of information for their clients. Their clients go to the salespeople for what's on the horizon, what are my peers and competitors doing, what's the new technology I need to know. They're fonts of information. So the service is almost secondary. The service is certainly um, what, what on paper they're exchanging. But reading between the lines, the best salespeople are fantastic advisors and consultants to their, their clients. And there's no, and that's where I've seen, I've seen uh, commoditized project, uh, products where the salesperson couldn't distinguish their product from their competitors. But what the client was really buying was the salesperson's input mm -hmm. and the trust that they had placed and the relationship that that salesperson had built with the client. Uh, and that's the art of it. That's the true art of sales. And with scientists, they feel very much that 
number one, unless you completely understand my molecule the way I understand my molecule, you'll never want to invest in it. And the bottom line is that's totally wrong, uh, number one. <laughs> and number two, again, is that they need to dumb it down because nobody has time for a two-day sales pitch, um, right? So again, it's that art of persuasion, that art of communication to be able to get across that message as succinctly as possible and a little bit objectively. Uh, I had this one guy, I was at a, at a Quebec City meeting, if you don't mind my going off on this tangent, Bruce, um, at, this, at the Quebec City meeting and he, was, he, um, he latched on because I was talking about communications and the art of communications and sales and stuff. And it was a very predominantly scientific audience. And he came out and he goes, I'm having a tough time getting investors. And he goes, every time I start talking to these guys, and he goes, you know, um, I start talking about my molecules. And my molecules are like my children. And I get passionate about them. And I start going on and on about them. And I, I just can't close the deal. And I need some help. And I said, okay. And I said, so let's take the metaphor that you started with. The molecules are like your children. And he says, yeah. And I said, okay. And I said, have you ever been at a dinner party where somebody won't shut up about their kids? And he sort of, and the light went on. And because everybody's been at a dinner party like that, right? Just because this one person, this one parent or father or mother are passionate about the kids doesn't mean I am. It doesn't mean I want to hear everything about every little detail about their children's lives. So he sort of, like you're at that dinner table and you're going, can you get to the point? Can you just tell, finish the story and let's move on? And he lit up and he goes, okay, I think I get it now. I understand. I have to be a little bit more objective. And I said, and you have to put yourself in the client's position. What do they want to hear from you? Not what you want to tell them. It's what do they need to hear? We've talked about a, a number of skills now yeah. um, that STEM grads and scientists might benefit from, but can you outline some other skills, competencies, or profiles that are needed to accelerate Canada's bioeconomy? Well, and it's not unique to the bioeconomy. We've certainly found out that amongst the younger set, there are essential skills. Um, things like numerous, excuse me, things like reading comprehension, things like numeracy. Um, I actually heard a dean of a, of a biotech program in university, and I won't name the university. However, he stated at a, at a meeting that he fully thinks, or he actually knows, that about half of the graduates, the undergrads, the graduate with a bachelor's of science degree from the technical, from the biotech program, can't do a basic co mathematical computation. Like they can't, in their head, say, if I ask them what's 80% of 300, they have a basic challenge to do that. Now, the next sound you heard was my jaw dropping onto the table because I couldn't believe that. Now, it certainly wasn't the case, I think, when I went to school, but, and I'm not beating up the new grads or the young people now, but there's a set of skills that are missing from a lot of these new grads that are absolutely fundamental to businesses and to uh, their success, especially when I say, Bruce, like I said, 80% of these companies are small and medium-sized enterprises. The last thing that defines you is your job title. Hmm. Somebody phones the, somebody rings, somebody um, calls you on the phone. Guess what? You're the receptionist. <laughs> somebody pitch, you know, right? Doesn't matter. Something happens. You guess what? You're the chief cook and bottle washer. It's it's all of those things because everybody pitches in. The smaller the company is, and that's the nature of the majority of the companies. So their life's blood is this ability to adapt, the agility that's needed if things, circumstances change. 
the ability to successfully communicate an idea, the ability to lead a meeting and to be charismatic enough so that you, turn, you don't turn everybody off the first 20 seconds you meet them, uh, the ability to just understand standard operating procedures, which are a laboratory's life's blood. So those were a set of essential skills that were missing and continue to be, but not limited to the bioeconomy because actually those essential skills are deficits in almost every vertical that are around. Yeah, I noticed BioTalent has courses around this now. What's the uptake on them? I, I feel like it, it may be something that people forego and say, I don't need that. Uh, what's your, your sense of the uptake? Um, it's extraordinary. We've, we've, we launched them a set of essential skills and technical skills, fundamentals for the bioeconomy just last mm -hmm. month. Okay. And uh, we, we launched the technical skills um, with our partner, the Stem Cell Network, uh, which is doing phenomenal, amazing work, especially around uh, funding research for type 1 diabetes and, uh, and um, uh, stem cell research in, in terms of curing and, and finding la long-lasting treatments for those. So very laudable goals. Um, these courses were developed actually in concert with two, two entities, the post-secondary academia and the employers. So the post-secondary academia who told us, yeah, we don't really teach those or we don't teach them enough. We sort of touch on them. Mm -hmm. And the employers who said, yeah, those are absolutely essential for us. They're, they're critical. So we went, okay, so we're hitting a good, a good um, segment here because we knew that these were not, we weren't duplicating work, that these were needed. So we started launching them and we've been finding not only, Bruce, are the employers really interested in it, they are, but organizations like immigrant serving agencies that are trying to equip newcomers with either alternatives career paths or, or, or trying to apply uh, skills that they've acquired in another country and trying to get them into the bioeconomy here. Mm -hmm. These are fantastic learning tools uh, and, and fundamental as they're, as they're titled. So we found them to be incredibly popular because, and we loved the process by which we came upon them because we knew they were gonna be successful from the get-go because we knew they weren't being taught, but we knew from the employers I mean, we had a company like Stem Cell Technologies, which is Canada's biggest biotech company, saying that those are absolutely gold. Those are exactly what we need. So now, the issue now is to make sure you're right, is that do these kids, do these newcomers, and do these job seekers understand they have a good enough mirror to realize, I'm not good in that. I don't have that skill yet. I need to, I need to sharpen those knives. So... We're hoping to go through the employers to say, we're going to use them as screening processes, or we're going to use them as onboarding. So it doesn't matter who we hire, we're going to get them to go through those courses. So what we're hoping to do is to have these courses become a bit of an industry standard, that if you take these courses, these will propel you or prepare you uh, for a more successful job search mm -hmm. and uh, a softer landing in one of these companies, because you'll feel at least you're talking the vernacular, you'll have the vocabulary, the that these these employers are expecting of an employee. So you almost need a course on self-awareness before they become, you know, convinced that they might need some other uh, skills training. Yeah, it's tough. Hmm. And you know what? People, especially in science, I've seen this in, in, in the CVs and the people that I speak to, people in science are loath because it's not, has nothing to do with science to say that, well, I worked at a, I would worked as a camp counselor to put myself through university for these three years because you know well, you know you were at camp camp bright day you know outside of brampton or something and you're going 
Well, that has nothing to do with my chosen career, which is science. People should not sell those opportunities short. The fact that you waited tables, the fact that you were a bartender, the fact that you were a camp counselor, the fact that you were a babysitter, the fact that thing, guess what? Those are exactly the people skills that these small companies require. And if you don't show them that you've had that client service aspect, that that waiting tables, that human interaction that you've acquired on the job, some of those people skills and those essential skills, uh, those you're selling yourself short because some of those skills are exactly what they're looking for. Mm-hmm. And they don't see it on your resume. They may discard you as among all the rest that don't show them because they're looking for a well-rounded individual. Because guess what? That's what SMEs need. They need people that have that. Certainly they need the education. They need the technical skills for science uh, laboratory work or or that kind of science acumen. But boy, do they need people skills. Because let's face it, Bruce, we know having careers like us, what's the biggest problem we're going to have with a potential employee? It's that... Bruce wasn't nice to me. Bruce is a pain in the rear end to work with. That's largely the point. They have to know, right? We've seen it's human nature. So it's a question where they want somebody who's going to fit. They want somebody who's going to be able to fit with multiple types of personalities and that that's not going to be a barrier to, to their success. Uh, let's talk about some of the flagship programs that Biotalent also runs. Maybe uh, could you give me an outline of those programs and how potential STEM grads can access them? Sure. Our flagship program right now is called the Student Work Placement Program, and it is a wage subsidy program. We've actually been in the wage subsidy business for about 16 years. So wage subsidies, is, as, the, as the name implies, means that we will, will offset a percentage of a student or a new graduate or a new employee's wages, the company hires them under, under certain criteria. So either the, 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 the new employee has to meet certain criteria and the, the company has to meet a certain criteria. So the wage subsidies have predominantly been uh, around junior employees, young people for youth employment, uh, new grads and active students. The student workplacement program that we've had, we have going is by far the largest we've ever done. This year alone in bioscience, we're placing over 1,400 students in paid co-op internship positions. Now, internship and co-op sort of hits two things. Number one, it gives you on-the-job training before you graduate your college or university program. Second of all, it allows companies to use that program as a recruitment strategy and a sustainable one. But a lot of these biotech companies are, are a long ways away from revenue. So it's difficult to entice them to hire green talent. The talent that's most valuable to them are talent that is at least three to five years of you know, bona fide experience in the marketplace, in biotech, in the biotech industry. But that talent is expensive and it's not readily available. So we try to attack those two challenges. Number one, affordability. And number two, the talent gap. So the affordability thing is, we essentially bribed these companies <laughs> to take on more co-ops, more work integrated learning placements than they ordinarily would by offsetting the wages through these wage subsidy programs. That by default allows the student to have a better resume when they graduate because they've already gotten some work experience within biotech. It means they're more employable, hopefully their salary expectations go up <clears throat> and it allows these companies to hire cheaper talent, but invest in them in terms of training and mentoring and all of that stuff. 
the online training courses I talked to you about just a little while ago, Bruce, was the sustainability portion because wage subsidies themselves is really only a band-aid solution, right? If you turn off the wage subsidy, the company stops hiring because you haven't solved the problem. And what's the problem? Upskilling the young or the green talent, right? So if we can upskill them and get them training in their hands before they work for these companies, number one, they'll be more attractive if we offer a wage subsidy. And number two, if the wage subsidies are turned off, they might be attractive anyway, because they can show, see, I have fundamentals in intro to good manufacturing practices, or uh, I have all numeracy skills and good reading comprehension and stuff like that, scientific report writing. We approach the, pro the problem in two ways. So the student work placement program allowed us to fund the money to create some of the technical online courses that we have as sort of the long-term fix to the problem, but at the same time to entice existing and new biotech companies to integrate work integrated learning into their hiring practices. So I pulled some stats from your website and mm -hmm. a survey of students who'd gone through the program in 2019 showed that more than 95% of the students were happy with their job activities and assignments and 99% of employers were satisfied with the student's performance with 100% of employers saying that they would participate again. Uh, so you've got a high level of engagement and satisfaction amongst your converted. I guess my understanding is that BioTalent has expanded the program and I was wondering what has the reception been, been from the employers? And maybe I'll just add on to that because we're in, in the era of COVID. Has, it, has COVID affected the program? Oh yeah, in a couple of different ways. So when COVID hit um, and everything shut down in Canada or largely across the provinces in March, we were very worried because, of course, a lot of these kids were working in laboratories and working and could they work in co-op positions from home? Like most of the, most of the time, this was hands-on physical monitoring and, and management of these kids. Um, and second of all, we were worried about, you know, will biotech still have an appetite for this kind of program in the midst of COVID? And then finally, have the needs increased? So the student work placement program originally was going to um, uh, provide 50% of the wage subsidy, and now they were providing the government up that to 75% and up to $7,500 per placement. That was the first thing that happened. The second thing that happened was our placements started to go up because biotech was finding a resurgence amidst COVID. There were a whole bunch of companies that were repurposing their, their internal machinations to develop PPE, mm -hmm. to, to rent out or to make their laboratory space available to vaccine producers, other so they would rent out their facilities or they were repurposing their own science to assist in vaccine production or vaccine research themselves. So there were a whole bunch of companies that were pivoting as we watched in the midst of the shutdown in the midst of the lockdown, which is fascinating to see. So that, that was the first thing that happened is that we found out that the uptake was greater. But second of all, the government came to us and said, look, the other sector that really requires support is the Canadian healthcare sector. And we agreed. I mean, what, what sector is more important during a pandemic than, than the healthcare industry, right? So the government asked because biosciences and certainly the life sciences sector is so closely aligned to the healthcare sector, would we be willing to take on another program uh, specifically geared toward healthcare in co-ops and work integrated learning? And we said, of course, yes, because when the government asks you to help the Canadian healthcare system in the midst of a pandemic, you say yes, because uh, that's that's just what you do. Mm -hmm. So we said yes. So we took on 1,500 new positions. Uh, and the good news is that out of 2,900 positions that we only started placing five or six months ago, 
um, we've already placed almost 2,000. So this has been a huge shot in the arm. And I got to applaud the Canadian government for finding the right vehicles. Uh, I mean, the proof is in the pudding. These kids would not have had jobs, would not have had these placements, and the biotech and Canadian healthcare industry would not have had this infusion of talent had it not been for the government's quick action. Um, and within a program that was tried, true, and uh, successful. So it's been a really, um, a really good marriage of need and, and efficacy of getting the money out the door and into these companies. Mm. Um, so it's been, it's been, we've been very, very fortunate that we were uh, Johnny on the spot to be able to help out on this thing, but we were, we felt very, very, uh, uh, very honored to do it. That's an awesome pivot. Can you give a story, any individual stories about students or maybe employers that have benefited from this program during this time? Sure. We've had, it's amazing. The, the employers that have come to us that have stated, you know, without this program, uh, our entire operations would not have been able to, to continue going. And back to your statistic of 95 to 99 to 100%, the faces that they put on with the kids, um, I say kids, but you know what I mean, they're, they're young adults, that um, the impact that they've made in, in, in some of these is areas, it's, it's incredible. We're getting biotech companies from the territories, from the lower North Shore of Quebec, from coast to coast to coast, that are simply stating that you know we would have shut down um, had we not had this kind of this kind of success. This last year, last year I met one of the uh, students who was in it. Uh, we have a an award called the Catalyst Award, and uh, it recognizes the uh, the infusion of this kind of talent, the, the the kind of talent that changes a company's culture, that propels them to new to new heights. And what's interesting about it is uh, the winner was last year was uh, from Stem Cell Technologies. Her name was Mina Huang from uh, Vancouver. And I had the honor earlier this year to meet her. And um, it was uh, it was interesting to see the not only the, the fact that that individual makes that kind of an impact um, out in, into a company the size of Stem Cell Technologies, which is literally thousands of employees, but also the cultural aspect where um, this is youth. And there are companies like, um, we have one company out in Toronto that used our wage subsidy program and it's transformed their, their community culture. The company is called BioConnect. Uh, it's a bioinformatics uh, organization uh, out of uh, Toronto. And uh, they were telling us how they used uh, our wage subsidy programs to onboard youth. And what they've done is they preferentially market new positions to youth. And they're allowing these millennials and these young people to rewrite the cultural playbook for the company, they're using their speed in adopting technology, um, their fearlessness in trying new things, all of these things to transform the company culture. That's the kind of change that we're finding it seizing in systemic in companies that's even more dramatic than the individual approach. It's the fact that this new labor market is transforming their whole HR practices. And that to me is more excited than anything else because that means that these companies are actually truly realizing that they're not just science companies, they're actually people companies. And they're realizing a, a, a type of expertise and a type of skill and a type of competitive advantage that a lot of bioscience companies haven't embraced yet. You mentioned the award winner, but we, we and we touched on women before, but one of the surprising statistics from Biotalent's 2020 labor market report that I came across was that mm -hmm. 
women only accounted for about 36% of the bioeconomy workforce and very low proportions in the management and C-suite positions. Even though women are actually studying STEM and health-related fields at a rate that, that exceeds men, did the survey reveal any insights on why there's still this imbalance and how is maybe the placement programs possibly able to address this, uh, this issue? The placement programs have been able to help the issue. Women are one of the underrepresented groups that the placement programs, companies get paid more if they take on a newcomer or a Canadian with a disability or an Indigenous Canadian or, or a woman. And so those companies are geared towards doing that. But, you know, it's called diversity and inclusion. And the thing is, too, we don't want to just have them hire more women. And that's just one of the underrepresented groups. We want them to listen to these new hires and to the women to give them a say and to change the culture so that not that you're just hiring more women, it's that you're keeping, you're retaining more women and that more women are finding careers within the company and rising and, and climbing that ladder um, with the same amount of, or if not more success than the males. Um, so the issue that has not been really addressed has been that idea of inclusion. Just because you have a company that has 60% of women does not mean that the women have a say or that the women are being listened to or that your, your culture is a, is a culture of inclusion. Um, do you have a culture where women feel involved, that their individual needs a progressive, a progressive uh, parenthood, parent, parental leave pro, pro policy, a mentorship program, professional development that is geared towards some of your underrepresented groups or towards an inclusive society and an inclusive culture. Uh, these are the things that a lot of small and medium-sized enterprises either have no idea how to do or they don't have the resources to do it, even if there was the impetus or the willingness to do that. So that's where we're finding, I think, the next step. There's a huge willingness amongst biotech companies to uh, be very open to diversity. They think that diversity, and it is, it's proven that diversity is good business, but inclusion is different. Diversity is a bit of window dressing where they want to attract that talent. Inclusion is how you change your inner internal machinations to make sure that talent finds a home, that that diverse talent can find a home. And I think that's the next challenge. A lot of the information, particularly with women is anecdotal. There are a lot of women that when they exit with a master's and PhD, they're in the middle of the reproductive years. Small and medium-sized enterprises often require long hours in the laboratory, not necessarily work from home, not always. Um, it's, it's typically a poor work-life balance. Um, and sometimes mentors, female mentors, are few and far between. They're hard to come by. We need to, to enhance their, these companies' abilities to attract that kind of talent. Now, I'm not saying that all of those all of those qualities, therefore, are um, not attractive to women or less attractive to women entering into those companies. But uh, anecdotally, at least, I could see that it could be a possibility. Um, another finding from the report was that holders of advanced degrees are less likely to participate in the work integrated uh, learning programs. What are some of the barriers from, from being able to increase participation by PhDs and masters, even and postdoc fellows. 
Oh, now you got me. Now you got me going into a controversial aspect here, Bruce. Um, the what you're talking about is actually the difference between uh, the alignment that we find within our Canadian colleges and our college institutions uh, differently than the, the university institutions. Here's the big difference: in the colleges, even in the undergrads, the research that undergrads are doing is less published worthy. It's less being able to be published by universities in the undergrads. So they're more motivated and the universities and more to the point, the professors, the principal investigators um, have less reason to demotivate the kids to go into work integrated learning programs. Okay. Colleges are the opposite in terms of from the top down colleges, their job is to get these kids into jobs. And that's the wonderful thing about the, the Canadian colleges is that they are aligned from the top to bottom. However, there's a bit of a, a disconnect within Canadian universities. And that's with professors who employ themselves, masters, students, and PhD students for their own research projects. These professors are highly motivated to publish, okay? So these students, because of their advanced education and knowledge, are very motivated to stay in the labs and not pursue professional development and other outside the University of Work Integrated Learning. Um, that is a disconnect because that motivation that many of the professors, the principal investigators put in can make the kids, the young people, less qualified or less attractive to outside employers. That is where I feel a lot of the master's degrees and PhDs are not doing that. Now, I'm not saying that that doesn't mean that they're not getting valuable experience in terms of the research projects they're doing within the academic laboratories. Far from it. But it's not business. It's theoretical science. Our institutions do a fantastic job of instilling second to none in the world, of instilling the kids with the theory of science. No question. That in education is second to none in the world. But statistics indicate and anecdotal evidence indicates from the top employers that they fall down when it comes to teaching them the business of science and those skills that are required. And that isn't given to them in the academic labs. It's given to them by outside institutions that are driven to commercialize. So it's unfortunate. It's something that has to be addressed because there is a misalignment. A lot of post-secondary institutions, do some do a much better job than others. And I certainly say those that are doing the cooperative education the co-op centers that embrace, especially those that are specifically concentrating their efforts within the science programs, my hat's off to them. But they do buck the trend. Uh, there are some institutions that put the grade point average to participate in a work integrated learning or a co-op program too high. And there's no way that they can put that much work into getting, I mean, hey, you want to get a 3.7 GPA, that takes a lot of work, right? Not much work left in the week to be able to work a co-op or the motivation to do it because you're exhausted. So it's that balance between the expectations within the science framework of the marks that are necessary and the expectation of these kids have to be set up for success after they leave the, the, the university, not just while they're there. Mm -hmm. It sounds like it's a culture shift that needs to happen and maybe a mindset that this can be, these skills can be developed are complementary, not competing with the success of the development of a scientist and a fully rounded scientist actually needs to have those skills in HR, communications, team building, so many other skills. It is amazing that that isn't perceived as valuable. Many of the scientists and young scientists that I've seen actually 
among the most productive in the lab end up being the ones also involved and engaged in other activities outside the lab. I, I, I don't blame the principal investigators for doing that. It's not that they don't think that those skills are valuable. Absolutely. But the expectations that are put on them are to publish, right? It's to publish and to publish their own research. So their job there, the university is propelling them to, and they are highly encouraged and rewarded to publish. So that's what they're going to do more than anything else. It's unfortunate that it may come to the detriment of the future career prospects of the master's or PhD student. But unfortunately, if you put in a system that rewards one form of behavior and gives no reward to the other, you're going to reap what you sow. It's unfortunate. And yeah, there should be a realignment. Uh, it's the system that's in, involved there. And it is unfortunate because it actually puts the principal investigators or the, or the professor's um, interests at odds with the co-op or the career education service for the university, which is trying desperately to get these kids into these jobs. So I just want to give a shout out to the website that you folks have developed because there's actually a lot of information and resources for young STEM grads trying to understand the opportunities in the bio uh, economy. And I thought I'd mention this because there's a whole set of information on career journeys and also maps that outline the path for a variety of job areas, including R&D, science writing, marketing and sales and other things like even regulatory positions. I also want to ask you about maybe other professional development resources that you've been uh, developing there. I've noticed also technical skills courses on GLP, GMP and QA yep. skills. And, and I think probably a lot of, at least for the industry side, we need people who have the understanding of it and actually execute on it. Do you want to talk about those courses, uh, the technical ones? Sure. Um, these were came out with some of those discussions that I mentioned earlier between the post-secondary academia and the employers. There were two sets of skills or two sets of uh, academic training, if not academic, on-the-job training that were required. We already talked about the essential skills. These were very unique to the bioeconomy. These, unlike the essential skills, which sort of are, are, are industry agnostic, these ones are very specific to biotech where we had kids who were coming out of theoretical undergrads, college and university uh, certificate programs that simply did not have the business skills, the technical business skills to work in a business lab, in a functioning laboratory or a scientific research situation. And these were the ones that the employers said they needed. And we realized in the universities and colleges admitted they weren't doing enough of them. And these were good laboratory practices, good manufacturing practices, good clinical practices, quality assurance and quality control and scientific report writing. And all of these are fundamentals. Now, you would think it's not that the universities and colleges didn't teach them. I just think that the way it was, it wasn't being taught in the practical situation of business. And so the employers were saying to us, anything that you could get to them that could give us an assessment of those skills would be awesome. So we launched this program. It gives a pre-assessment. Uh, then it gives you a course material. Each course is a couple of hours long. Some of them are a little longer than that, but most of them are a couple of hours. You can do the entire set in a, in a couple of days. And um, at the end, you get a, a little uh, designation that we call you bio-ready for the fundamentals in, um, in uh, bioeconomy technical skills. And what we're hoping is that these kids and newcomers who are coming to Canada can uh, get that designation and put it on their resume. And the employers who have helped develop it for us will put those resumes to the top of the pile. In fact, the, the employers have already stated they will, so, uh, which is good. And what we're also hoping to do is to work with the co-op and career education centers so that anybody who takes a work integrated learning placement goes through these courses. 
because not only will they be valuable after they finish it, they'll be valuable, even more valuable during their work integrated learning placement. So, so far, like I said, uh, we launched these at the Stem Cell Networks, um, our partner, the Stem Cell Network, uh, their conference last week or two weeks ago, and to much fanfare, and it's they've been quite successful. So, we're hoping to enhance them. We're going to be adding new to, new ones to them uh, in the coming year. We're developing a whole set, a new set of intro to the bioeconomy, so that high school and kids that are in science can get a really good introduction to these courses and to the different subsectors of biotechs when they're making career choices. Mm-hmm. Uh, maybe they don't want to go into life sciences. Maybe bioenergy or the agrobiotech is, is more up to them. Well, they need to know what that industry is and where it's booming and in what areas and what, where they can concentrate their studies. So we're hoping to do that a lot more. So we're very excited about this new thing. These courses are 100% online uh, in English and in French. So they're perfect for somebody who's studying or working from home. Uh, they're not the traditional in-person workshops. Now, we would have loved to have done that, but obviously uh, fortune favored the foolish in the fact that we, we chose a platform that was going to be perfectly adaptable to today's uh, today's uh, reality. One of the talent gaps that, that exists as well, and we talked about the executive leadership talent gap, but what about the entrepreneurial leader talent gap? Uh, how do you develop that sort of person? And is it even possible to develop strategies to develop that mindset, the ambition, the desire to create value, and even withstand the potential for failure and risk? Yeah. So... As I told you, I'm a fan of sales, and there's a reason for this. There's, there's something that cannot be avoided when predicting success for the typical salesperson. It's 50% numbers, training, and technology focused. The other 50% is simply personality makeup. In other words, 50% of that determines a salesperson's success is whether they embrace, whether they have a salesperson's personality or a salesperson's mindset. I think this is even probably more so with the entrepreneur. And the entrepreneur, the entrepreneurial spirit can be taught, in my mind, to a certain extent. But if you don't have somebody who whose eyes light up at the idea of not getting paid for 12 months before they, they put a market or a, a, a company to commercialize, these kinds of things that scare the living daylights out of everybody else, every other human being on the planet. But there's a significant proportion that goes, no, that sounds actually pretty interesting. I'd like to go for the big prize. And I want to uh, think big and, and act big. And, and I think the key to this is, do we need to have a set of entrepreneurial training within biotech? Of course, but not for everybody. And I think what we really need to do is identify these entrepreneurial mindsets and personality traits and skill sets early so that we don't train them out of them. If we find an entrepreneur within the undergrad or within college that we find, wow, this person has the real mindset and the skill set of a true entrepreneur, then we have to bring them into a different stream, okay? And get them mentored and get them out into the industry so they can apply that set of skills and that set of drives earlier. Mm. Um, That's what I think is the problem. I don't think that we have any lack of them. I think that we're all, we're painting everyone with the same brush in terms of how we educate them and how we train them for success. And if you want to be, and don't get me wrong, uh, academics are absolutely needed and and required and valued in our country, but not everybody wants to teach after they have a PhD. Some want to be business drivers. Some want to be entrepreneurs, but they need that PhD. They need that advanced knowledge in order for them to split the atom 
to be able to manipulate the molecules and understand that in terms of being able to think, go through things forward. But that mindset has to be identified before they get their PhD. Mm-hmm. Otherwise, it's too, too late. And too late meaning, you know, a lot of people who are graduating their PhDs 32 years old. Well, you're, you're going to need those people skills, those sales skills, those leadership skills, those entrepreneurial skills honed and nurtured well before that. And I think that's the real, the real issue mm-hmm. is that we don't have, biotech is worse at that than in IT. It's worse at that than in high tech and in, in, in some of the technical where, where the technology and the investment cycle is so quick that it, it seems to lend itself better. The other thing too is that I have to admit the American ecosystems in terms of finding these people, putting them into a special stream that is industry driven and nurturing them is way better developed than ours. And I think we could learn a thing or two from that. Can you talk about mentors? You, you touched on it just now. Who have you looked up to? For mentorship? Well, I mentioned two of them where I said Alan Alda and Neil deGrasse Tyson. Um, there's a few uh, that I've found. I've certainly liked, I've certainly liked Bill Gates' approach to leadership uh, and Bill Gates' approach to philanthropy. The fact that this was a science nerd and that science drove the decision-making, I've liked that. From a leadership perspective, I've always found, found uh, Jimmy Carter from the States in terms of his human, hu- humanistic approach has always appealed to me. More to the point, Bruce, I think there's we have an abundance of leaders that aren't heroes um, that unfortunately um, that I've taken a look at and I'm going, yeah, you know what? That's not the leader I want to be. And for those, I, I take leaders like uh, Steve Jobs. I'll take Jeff Bezos. And the reason being is that they treated their people very poorly. Uh, they have a history of it and they have a reputation of it. And I think you have a responsibility when you're a leader that, to be a good steward of the company that you're founding. And that that job is to treat your people as well as possible. And I mean that literally, as well as it is possible for you to do. And if you're a billionaire, <clears throat> you don't cut people's benefits. You don't treat people badly just because they aren't giving you the answer that you were hoping to get. Applying science for the public good is the whole, to me, the whole purpose of science. Like if we're not trying to improve the human condition, if we're not trying to improve the world, what's the point? Like what, what is the point of science if not that? And I think that's why I do enjoy Bill Gates because he was able to, to take the science principles and the business acumen that he had gotten and he puts it to philanthrop- philanthropical use. Mm. And I, I, I like that idea. I think applying science only to rampant capitalism does science a disservice in the eyes of the public. It doesn't surprise me that the most rapid capitalists are usually the lousiest leaders. They treat their people the worst in terms of, because that's what rapid, rampant, unbridled capitalism does. That's at least, that's, that's, that's what I think. Um, there are others, but those are the ones from a business leadership right now. I, the ones that I try to emulate and the ones I try to avoid. I think I recall this correctly, but BioTalent Canada has been recognized as one of the top employers in Canada. Is that True. Yeah, we've been we were we were fortunate enough to um, to be recognized as one of the top workplaces in Ontario and one of the top workplaces in Canadian healthcare. So it's a, we're very proud of that. We got that designation this year in 2020. Congratulations on that designation. Um, before Thanks. we kind of wrap up, I wanted to maybe mm-hmm. just switch gears and ask you about your involvement in the community. I think you're not only very 
steeped in the business community by Talent Canada, but you volunteer in the arts community as well. And you're also a performer. Can you talk about your motivation around participating in the arts and also contributing voluntarily to different organizations in the arts community? Sure. The arts can enrich you in so many ways. I learned that very young and in so many ways you don't expect. Music itself is pro- music itself is a language and it's a mathematically precise language. So it's, it's rooted in the sciences. And if you actually take a look at anything under a microscope from a, the way a cell's organelles are, like it's, it, it's, it seems like it's a dance. So science is not that far away from art. A lot of people think that it is because science is so clinical and very cold and the art is so warm and emotional and humane. But they're both rooted in a, in a, in a discipline and in a, in a mathematic precision, certainly. Uh, both visual arts and 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 the arts. So very early, I was a, a musician. I grew up. My parent, my brothers and sisters were quite musical, and I loved the idea of music. And I wasn't bad on the guitar. I was pretty good, and I learned how to sing. And uh, that became um, a great passionate outlet. And I I know people do that. I mean, you have these brilliant scientists who knit and uh, others that paint and there's this great creative outlet that you require and i i think it is very not only cathartic but it it, but it rounds you out as a person so the arts were starting to me was a was a complete selfish egotistically driven indulgence i wanted to get better at something i really loved which was music and uh, performing and artistry and i found outlets to do that what i didn't expect was that the arts community would expose me to such a diverse group of human beings where the self-identification, the, the, the feeling of safety in terms of self-expression in all ways was so rampant and lovely and drove, it fed, and the art. It simply made me a better human being and a better communicator and a better leader, a better person, because I expanded my horizon to include friends and fellow performers of every ethnicity, race, sexual orientation, uh, gender identification, everything. Where if I was cloistered in my basement, I would not have been exposed to that. And my decision-making and my planning and my ideology would be rooted in my very, very cloistered network. So it's incredible that the benefit of the arts, it will improve you in ways you have no idea. Uh, And certainly not the ways that you think that you enter into it or that you support it, that you think. Um, So I love it because it is so different than my everyday, but in in other ways, not so much. But it makes me so much better, not just as a leader or as a scientist or as a, or as a a business manager, but as a human being. Um, And not just because I participated in for art's sake, it's everything that it brings along with it. Um, And it's, uh, I highly recommend it for people to, uh, especially those who are, you know, diversity and inclusion starts becoming um, a bit of a cliche. Oh yeah, we have to be worried about diversity and inclusion. Let's put a check in that box. Yes, we're diverse and inclusive, you know, as an organization. You want to be really be diverse and inclusive, get involved in the arts community. I guarantee you it will, it will expand your networks and your mind and your ideas about society in ways that you never imagined. Couldn't agree more. So I noticed in your LinkedIn profile that you quoted your father as saying, people do business with people they like. What does that mean to you? And how has that shaped how you foster relationships, build networks and forge partnerships? Because it's something that it's one of the, it's one of the truisms of life that people forget. You know, people think they have to have the best mousetrap. People think they have to have to have the best elevator pitch. Humans are, humans crave human connections. It's why we're struggling in a pandemic. It's why we're all feeling threadbare. It's because the usual avenues for us to 
connect with our fellow human beings are cut off. We have to be creative about finding it. And that's, it's a thirst and we're all feeling it to a lesser or greater degree. But in terms of business, there's a reason people can have a, a not as good a mousetrap. But if you make that human connection, people are willing to overlook anything. I'm not talking about tricking them. I'm talking about making a true con human connection with it. So many people are worried about, oh, well, a leadership skill, you have to have this visionary, you have to, da, 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 da. you know, you were talking earlier about Bruce, you were saying we were mentioned one of the, one of the best workplaces in, in Ontario and Canada. And I mentioned that. What does best mean? Does that mean we have the best benefits program? No. Does that mean we pay people better than anybody else? Not necessarily. I don't think so. Does that mean, you know, we have the greatest job security? No. You know what best means? Best means nicest. Best means nice. People want to work with people that are nice to them, that are nice. It's a human craving. And the bottom line is, it is the biggest barrier. If somebody thinks that you like them and that they like you and that there's a human connection, they will naturally want to do business. In fact, you're probably, if they really like you, they're going to have to find a reason not to. We dwell on so many other things than the psychology of human interaction. It's the same idea where we're talking about stories. We want stories that make us feel. We want people that make us smile. We want to do business with people, not companies. We want to do business with people, not products, not things, not commodities. Uh, that's what makes us smile. It's what drives us. And that's why it's important. It's the same idea where, you know, uh, employees want to deal with employers who are nice to them, you know, and it's not that difficult to do. It's not that difficult to do, but it's things that so many people miss. It's, it, it's, they dwell on all of the other things instead of just the human basic, the, the human basic drive for connection. So what would be your final piece of advice before we wrap up to young grads and professionals in managing their career journeys? So many people have expectations of number one, uh, they're going to start off further in the career than they actually will be. Don't negate the kind of experience we talked about, the kind of essential skills that allowed you to become a really good client service rep or a good camp counselor and all of that things that you can bring to. And don't discount the small companies. The small companies, you can learn so much and can do so much uh, and advance your career so much within a small company without necessarily looking for the corner office and the grandiose title uh, too quickly. Uh, don't discount that experience. And in fact, I would say embrace it mm. and embrace uh, all of the experience that you've had to work at along the way. If you've gotten a degree in science, that is no small feat. You've had to pay for that in sweat equity. You've had to pay for that in tuition fees, and you had to earn that money somewhere. And you've had to accumulate a whole bunch of skills along the way. So don't negate those just because uh, you don't think that the employer necessarily uh, appreciates them. That's my first piece of my first piece of advice. And the second piece of advice is work for businesses that appreciate you. There are some that don't deserve you, and there are some bad managers out there and bad employers. Be good at recognizing them and recognize your worth. Uh, there are really good companies out there and they deserve good employees. So make sure you don't attach your cart to a bad horse for too long. With that, Rob, thank you very much. That was fantastic. I very much appreciate the advice, the insights, and also sharing your journey uh, with us on the STBN podcast. All the best to you and the team at Biotalent for the great work you do. And thanks for joining us. Thanks, Bruce. I very much enjoyed it. I appreciate the opportunity. You've been listening to our guest, Rob Henderson from Value Talent Canada, on this episode of the Science to Business Network podcast. If you're interested in learning more about the Science to Business Network, please visit 
our website at www.s2bn.org. If you have any questions or comments, please feel free to email me at bruce.seat at s2bn.org. That's b-r-u-c-e dot s-e-e-t at s2bn.org. Thanks for listening.